Welcome to Offshoot, the Fight and Capital podcast with host Kevin Choquette. Offshoot is a curiosity-driven conversation that features a wide range of real estate and business professionals. In each episode, we unpack the knowledge, vantage point, and domain expertise of our guests. Then, we move beyond the facts and figures and dive into the personal habits and mindset which allow them to be high performers in their respective field. This podcast's objective is simple supporting entrepreneurs, fostering relationships, and uncovering meaningful conversations that positively impact business. Welcome to episode 14 of Offshoot with Howard Katkov, CEO and co-owner of Red Mountain Resort in Rosslyn, British Columbia. Howard has started and successfully run seven different companies and pulled a steady paycheck from them for more than 45 years straight. He loves the game of business and building successful ventures from vision through execution with the support of a strong team. In this pod, we talk a good bit about all aspects of Howard's background and spend a fair bit of time on the ski mountain and the ski industry. Two of my key takeaways are that you don't always have the luxury of confidence in your decision making, and yet, you need to lead. The other, you need to truly understand the risks associated with your real estate deal, especially in terms of the time required to properly do the job, and that accepting a mismatch between the deal and the timeline of your investors is a recipe for trouble. Patient money and autonomy matter. Secure it up front or pay later. Listen further in as Howard covers other areas, including being a rule breaker, not a rule maker, balancing the interests of capital and community while being a steward of both, the fact that pound for pound, there's no better ski location in North America than Red Mountain Resort, building teams as a partner and less of a conventional top-down boss, removing interdepartment communication walls, picking your investors carefully, letting younger team members influence the direction of the company when they reflect the sentiment and sensibilities of the target market, having humility and listening and observing to fill in your understanding, and never looking back with regret, instead looking back to learn. I hope you enjoy the pod. Welcome everyone to another episode of Offshoot, the place where my wanderings through the world of real estate finance allow me to engage remarkable people in free-form conversations on a range of business and personal topics. Today we've got, as the Aussies would say it, an absolute legend. Howard Katkov is the CEO and owner of Red Mountain Lodge in Rossland, British Columbia. Based upon his long and winding career, Howard strikes me as an entrepreneur in love with creation, business, and adventure. In his early career, he started a law practice, which remains active to this day, then a successful San Diego residential development company that delivered over 3,000 homes and took San Diego's number four spot in only five years. He then started the cosmetics company, Jane, selling it to Estee Lauder just a few short years later. From Estee Lauder, he took a CEO role for a tech company, and then in 2004, he and his partners acquired Red Mountain Lodge. To put it mildly, Howard has tons of experience. He's a former member of the State Bar of California. He secured his undergrad at the University of Nevada at Reno and JD from West, Cal Western School of Law. He's also blessed to be the father of four, grandfather of two, and has another grandbaby on the way. I met Howard quite recently through a mutual San Diego friend on the occasion of a property-specific capital raise for new condos at the base of Red. 
after just a couple conversations with Howard and a CFO, became clear that a visit to Red was in order. That trip pretty much blew my mind, as in, these places still exist? Visiting Red's like going to Alta or Snowbird, when there was only one or two brand new accommodations at the base, and few enough skiers to make the development of that kind of real estate hold some material risk. It's like going back 70 years to the way ski mountains existed before they gave, began shifting to resorts, catering to all sorts of people, even those that don't ski. I loved it. Beyond the mountain and the community, which were generously unpacked by a drive to the summit and an early mountain bike tour, both led by Howard, I was really intrigued by Howard and his story. I'll restrain myself from giving you the short version and the absolute nuggets contained therein because I've got Howard on the line. Howard, welcome to Offshoot. Thank you, Kevin. It's nice to be here. Yeah, look, I know you've got an incredibly rich background, and if there's any risk here, it's probably trying to cover too much in a single conversation. But as they say, uh, every journey begins with a single step. And, and this one, candidly, I think is more about the journey than any particular destination. So to start, could you just give me a bit of background on yourself and, and Red Mountain Resort? Well, background on myself, I was born in Southern California in 1950. Uh, grew up in Palos Verdes and Cronomar and discovered surfing in the 60s when it was really an outcast sport, not mainstream aspirational sport. And that was a quite a deviation academically until I started to focus on getting my act together as a, an adult when I turned 18. And I ended up in the mountains in University of Nevada, Reno, and fell in love with the mountains at that time. Started skiing and just appreciating what the Alpine meant to me, you know, to my soul. And ended up in San Diego in law school, just as a happenstance. I was scheduled to go to University of Virginia, but fell in love with a girl in a small town in Nevada and ended up moving to San Diego and I graduated law school, but that relationship didn't uh, succeed. Uh, fortunately, I've now been married 44 years with the same woman, Tracy, with three sons and one daughter, two grandsons, and another granddaughter on the way. I have been working consistently since 1976. What I mean by that is I haven't had a month to go by that has gone by without a paycheck. Not necessarily proud of that, but I have been uh, pretty focused on being an entrepreneur in some very diverse and unrelated categories. Yeah. In No, go ahead. Go ahead. So if you want to start from where I am today, I... In 2000, actually in 1995, when I owned a cosmetic company, I had some reps from the Southeast that would have an annual ski trip to Vail, Colorado. And in 1995, the first time I showed up there, I met a guy named Jack Carey, who was six foot seven, weighed 165 pounds and had a white ZZ top beard. And he was our quote. And he was our quote, ski instructor. Uh, he had lived in Colorado, or Telluride, Colorado for the last 
at that time, 33 years, ran the movie theater in Telluride, lived actually behind the movie theater, chopped wood for movie stars in the summer. And he was a quintessential dirtbag skier. And he had told me from 1995 to 2000 about Red Mountain. He was from New Hampshire, and his line was, Howard, you got to go to Red Mountain. It's the greatest ski resort in North America. <laughs> and for five years, we skied together. He was our, quote, teacher, but he was really my powder buddy. He and I both are first chair guys, and we got... Uh, we got to become close friends. <clears throat> so finally, in February of 2000, I came back from this annual trip and told my wife, we're going to go to this place called Roslyn. I came back on a Sunday. We flew up there on a Friday. I met, I went online and saw a woman that looked like a nice person named Artist Urquhart. Said, I'm looking for real estate. Trounced around the town that day. and It was raining and... I didn't even ski and looked at a lot of old houses and I said, is there anything else up here? And she goes, well, there is this 18 lot subdivision that the guy went bankrupt on years ago, but it's got sewer, water, street lights, all the utilities. And I went, well, that's interesting. So I went and saw these lots that were just in the center of this town and bought three lots sight unseen and drove home. Looked at my wife as we were driving back the next day and went, well, that was random, and uh, we started building a house that September. So I went up there principally and entirely to build a retirement home for my family because skiing was embedded in our way of life, and that was the beginning of Red Mountain. And then, and, if, as I understand it, uh, something happened there with the with the. At that point, it was community owned, right? The mountain was no at. So the, the mountain is the third oldest ski resort in North America, the oldest in Western Canada. So it started in anywhere between December 1947 and February of 1948. It's slightly debatable, but it certainly is the third. And it was owned by the community until 1986. Okay. And in 1986, a group of six guys bought it, local people, except one bond guy out of Toronto. And while I was framing the house, someone said, did you hear the ski resorts in a bit of trouble? I, you know, I did not know very many people at the time. Uh, one of the six owners had died. One of them was on dialysis and they were just getting old. So I put together a group and had a couple shots at it. The first shot, uh, we weren't successful. Someone from back East, uh, had it under contract, but then fell out. And I finally put it under contract in September of 2003. And my first career as a real estate lawyer for eight years was an entitlement, real estate entitlement lawyer. So my partner and I then flipped, we actually amended the official community plan in September of 03 and closed escrow in June of 2004 and we changed the entitlement from 400 units to almost 1400 units and then closed okay so what's happening for you guys now i mean that's obviously a long ways back and you've been at it since 04 long time uh i've passed my retirement age at least three times if you talk to my <laughs> wife 
we have had, I mean, just 18 years in a nutshell, the first three years of our ownership was a time, crazy real estate times, the boomers were buying real estate all over second home real estate at golf courses and at ski resorts. And we enjoyed the wave of that. And I built a 67 unit project in 2006 and seven. Uh, we sold land to developers. Actually, coming out of the gate, our first three years were way over our pro forma. And things were good. And then 2008 showed up. And we had actually completed our 67-unit project. We closed enough units to pay off our bank. And we all know about 2008 and 9 and 10 and 11. So what I learned in my real estate, 10 years of real estate development in San Diego was debt is a killer. Uh, and if you're over leveraged and the economy changes and guaranteed if you're in real estate, you're going to have an experience of a down cycle at least once, twice, three or four times. In my case, I think this is my fourth time seeing a down cycle. So I made sure we were uh, had low leverage in this construction loan, had high pre-sales, and we endured the, uh, the recession. And coming out in 2013, I opened up a, a mountain. We have five peaks. So we are the ninth largest ski resort in North America. We're 1,313 or 3,850 3, acres of skiable terrain. And in 2013, we opened up one of our five mountains called Gray Mountain, which is 1,000 acres. So it's the size of Mount Baker with one single chair, the skiing 360 degrees. And that was the largest uh, ski resort expansion of an existing ski resort in over 45 years at the time. And that was a big deal. That put us on the map. And we started to see visitation increase pretty significantly. And kind of from 2013 on through kind of 18, 19, we were focused more on our operating company as opposed to real estate. Because real estate hadn't really come back in, in any great volumes. I did do a 73-lot subdivision that right now is about 75% sold out and with some beautiful homes. But we hadn't really put our toe in the water for another significant piece of, of housing, large housing, until this last year. So our, our focus has been building our brand building our awareness. We're an eclectic mountain in terms of visitation. We have 40% of our ski visitation is U.S. and international. And that continues to grow. And, and with the just the consolidation of ski resorts through Vail Resorts and Altera Mountain Company, it has changed the landscape pretty significantly in relation to the ski experience. Uh, i.e. crowds mm -hmm. and lack of services to handle these crowds, our resort is becoming even more noted for still an incredibly great ski experience from the moment you drive up to the moment you leave. And you guys just uh, started the, the newest real estate project there. Um, it's what, 100, 100 units? 102 units. So in December of 2020, I had this idea that it was 
it was time to build another significant project. And, you know, the way I do real estate development in terms of minimizing your risk, which is my focus now, there's always risk in real estate development, but you can minimize it. So my, my formula is that I raise enough money to take a project to market, which includes all design development, all sales and marketing, uh, and all the other associated things to get through legal to get your to have the ability to put a project for sale in Canada, which is different than in the United States. To so be able, I raised to, be able to do pre-sales, right? Take hard deposits and all of that. Correct. Yeah. Correct. But that requires full design development because when you take pre-sales, you have 50% design development of your working drawing. So a consumer knows what they're getting and you cannot change the documents that describe those more than call it 5% or they would have an, a right to rescind their contract. So you have to be quite um, complete in order to go out to the market. So, and, and what I, what I had been noticing obviously is how expensive real estate was in major ski resorts, you know, $1,500 a foot, 2000 a foot, $1,200 a foot, but in locations that certainly aren't, ski and ski out anymore and if they are they're just extraordinarily expensive pricing out most people the average person and so watching what was happening in urban areas particularly vancouver toronto san francisco where and new york small units studios lots that are average you know 500 square feet so i had the idea of taking this loft concept to our resort at a location at the base that was 37 steps, 50 steps to the chairlift. So incredible location. And we put, we, we went to market in February 10th of 2022. And we sold 70% of those within the first three weeks. We're now at 80%. And we broke ground in on June 24th of 2022, and will be complete in the fall of 2024. And in terms of the risk profile, back to my formula, so to speak, is I raised a million and a half dollars to get us to market and get pre-sales that were sufficient enough to satisfy a construction loan. And that was 70% of the construction loan. So this is a $46 million project. It's a $30 million construction loan. So we needed, we actually needed $29 million of pre-sales. So we got those pre-sales within those first three weeks. We're now at 35 million of pre-sales. So we're significantly higher. So that was kind of risk point number one. If we would have failed in that, then that investor, uh, we had three years to kind of hit that goal. If not, his investment was secured by that piece of property. So his risk was not extreme. Um, Then the next point was we got our construction loan and we had the pre-sales and off we are. We have two more winters to sell 22 units and um, there's no doubt that we'll do that. Since September, we've sold 10 more units. So it's, and the average price point Canadian was 354,000. A unit, the average square footage was 444 square feet. 
the largest units were 700 square feet. We had lofts that were 600 square feet. So uh, quite, uh, quite a, go ahead. Oh, well, I imagine it depends on your perspective, right? In terms of either that's incredible value getting in for 354 Canadian, which I think it's, it's roughly 0.75 if you want to translate that to us dollars or, um, Maybe if you're a long-term Rossland local, they think you're, you know, crazy and, and getting these prices that they, they can't believe. How, how does that all shake out in terms of the dialogue around the price point? And, and you know, obviously the market is voted. You're 80% sold. So, Well, it's interesting. The people of Rossland were shocked that we, you know, go out there with such a large project. It's the largest condominium project ever built in the southeast Kootenays hmm. for sale it's probably one of the largest i don't know how many hundred unit plus condominium projects have gone to the market in any top 10 ski resort in the last 10 years frankly uh-huh. principally because principally because they don't have the land to do it at this kind of location right i mean you know squaw valley they had a building that they tore down you know kind of in the lower parking lot to build something so um I have two people, one who runs events for me and one who runs a high performance rental that are buying lofts on the top for their own personal home. Uh, we probably have 10 or 12 sales from local people. Hmm. Um, people were, you know, I sold a unit last Saturday for $1,000 a square foot. And we're now at, a, you know, it, it validates the quality, the location and the value proposition uh, at an epic ski resort now coupled with a pretty incredible real estate value at the, in the U S side, I have 25% U S visitors, typically 15% international. Our U S buyer profile is now 60% U S buyers for this project. No, oh, that's interesting. So, so the opening, the opening price for a U.S. buyer for our smallest lower floor studio was 263,000 US. It's it's just not possible to find that anywhere in a top 10 ski resort in North America. Yeah. So so right now, I mean obviously you just launched the the 102 unit project. What what's next? What are the challenges you guys are navigating? You know, what's on the horizon? And and feel free by the way to talk about the mountain because I think well, I know that a bunch of the listeners for whatever reason also our skiers, maybe there's a high correlation between real estate and skiing. Um, but you know, I think what you guys have is, is remarkable in terms of place. And I don't want that to be, uh, lost here and just getting overly business. Um, but how do you, you know, what's, what's next on the horizon and how do you think about managing the resource that is red, be it investor capital, land, community, the skier experience, like there's a, it's a very dynamic environment that you're navigating. It is. There's a lot of pressure on economic growth and maintaining the history, the heritage and the ski experience that is second to none. So if you just want to talk ski experience, I showed up in 2000. I have skied two ski resorts for one day each since 2000. <laughs> there is not a better ski resort pound for pound in North America. And I've had people who have skied the world, you know, you know, Fisk racers, Olympians, 
you know, big mountain snowboarders and skiers. And after a powder day with us, their quote was, that was the best powder day I've ever had at a ski resort in my life. Mm-hmm. I can't tell you how many times people have told me that. So, you know, we as a, start as a ski town. USA Today has ranked us in number one ski town two years in a row, in the last two years. We have New York Times put us in the top 40 places to visit in the world, ski or otherwise. We were number eight in, I think, 2015. Skiing in, in this resort is like going to a park with your kids and just hooking up with people and having a day with no anxiety, knowing that on a good powder day, you can show up at noon and ski 20,000 feet in a few hours untracked the first day. Hmm. And it's our, because we are so large. And because of our t- topography, so we're 3,000 feet vertical, we have five mountains, three of which are 360 degrees of skiing all the way around. So we have been ranked number one tree skiing in Canada for pretty much every year. It's We tell people skiing at red is like cat skiing or heli skiing without the, the cat. The cat or, or the heli. There. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, that piece. And then the community piece, This this community it's been around for 130 some years. It's an old mining town, not unlike, you know, so many Park City and parts of the Sierras. But the community is extremely proud of this mountain and extremely proud to show any visitor the mountain. So on a lift, on a, on a powder day with a lift line, there's no anxiety. You know, we'll typically pass out cocoa if the, the blasting is continuing avalanche control. And people are happy, you know, and because they know once they get on the mountain, they're going to, they'll be baked by one o'clock. Mm-hmm. And so the, 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 the relationship that we have with our customer, that is the people who live in this resort, in this community of Rosin, is, is incredible. You can go there as a single woman or man, and I promise you by the end of the week, you will be with someone at their house and or having dinner with them. Guaranteed. It just happens time and time and time again uh, because people are engaging. And you know at a major resort on a powder day that you know has, you know, that could turn 30,000 visits in that day, it is not mellow. No. Uh, and it is, there are lift lines, it's expensive, and it's just not relaxed, not relaxing. So I'm, I have no issue with those places. I, they're my partners. I'm an icon member, but I'm just saying you juxtapose that kind of big urban experience to what we have. You'll never be the same once you come here. Well, and so how do you mm, maintain that? Yes, because like I grew up in Durango and even back in the 80s, there was, you know, two bumper stickers that I recall. Last person to leave Durango, turn the lights out and uh, call someplace paradise and kiss it goodbye. Right now, it, you know, fast forward 40 years. Durango is still a lovely community, and yes, it's changed a lot, and, and there are things that I'm sure 
those who wish change never happened uh, have disappointment over. But how do you have that kind of playpen, if you will, in terms of the natural resources and the pressure on it, and then be a for-profit enterprise with an eye to preserving the culture and being a good steward of the community. And, you know, I mean, yeah, there's other ways to play this game with really large buckets of capital and just go large. And it doesn't seem that's the way you guys have approached this. So it's a balance, you know, first of all, you know, I grew up as a dirtbag skier and, you know, deep down I still am. And so selfishly, we all want to maintain what we all love about Red Mountain. And what I've proven in the last over 18 years now is that you can do it. I call it developing assets or creature comforts, but I call it creature comforts under the radar. And so you have to start with a vision. And the vision is that you need to be economically sustainable, obviously. But what I'm proving is that you can be economically sustainable, yet not disenfranchise your community or leave or drift away from your core values that are so important to you as an individual and as a fiduciary as the CEO of this place. In other words, I have fiduciary duties to my investors, clearly, as we all do. But I also have fiduciary duties to this community that I have adopted because of my own choice and the choice of the people that work for me. So how's that that show up? I I pull up with, uh, well, either an offer to buy it buy the whole thing from you or a hundred million dollars of, of equity ready to deploy because there's enough uh, economics that could support that kind of investment. You know, how do you, I hear what you're saying and I think it's admirable and I think it's a really difficult um, balance, but you know, how do you respond when things come forward, which I'm sure they do. Yeah, I've had a couple that have come forward. You know, one case in particular where the individual who was interested in just the operating company. So just to give you some context, we have still buildable real estate and a retail value of 900 units and about 1.3 billion left to build in comprising 22 different projects, most of which are at the base are in the mountains. So incredible real estate. But a lot of people aren't real estate developers. So I've had people approach us for the operating company, the ski ops. Mm -hmm. And, you know, one guy in particular mentioned me, you know, what do you think about taking down the day lodge? Because, you know, it's, it's got this old center core and you know, I said to him, that's a good way to be struck down by lightning and, and or have the town hate <laughs> hate you for the rest of your life. So that person just didn't make it. And it, on a price, it was not that far away. So how do you protect it? Let's say someone comes in to buy the ski coat. You know, we would put covenants in there that the, the ski lockers and the rafter lodge, they cannot be taken down. 
um, protecting that. But, you know, once once we'd sell, and there will be a point where we will sell, uh, there is a, an element of risk. Once you lose control, you lose control. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't control pricing. You don't control what they develop. But, you know, just on the real estate side, we have 90 pages of, of design criteria that controls what can and cannot be built that is now part of the city's zoning and you know that that will protect at least that piece um, on the real estate side for instance you can't build a condominium at the base without underground parking because ultimately our master plan is there's probably five six hundred units left to be built down there plus another hotel there'll be it will be a complete pedestrian community with maybe 200 parking places for summer activities with all parking put across the highway. Mm. So someone can't come in there and just bulldoze that concept. That's part of the the official community plan. That's part of our zoning. Um, In terms of the ski op piece, you know, I'm not going to tell you that, you know, down the road, someone might have a different idea of how to manage this business. But I think we have certain things in place that will at least protect some of it. You can't protect it all when you sell. Yeah. But, you know, my I, I didn't come here to, you know, basically stretch myself across the freeway for the rest of my life, <laughs> you know, protecting the ski resort. But I, I certainly have spent a lot of years and a lot of energy doing the best that I can and my team can. And I think we've done it. The community loves us, the city, our relationship with the city. On the real estate side, we have never lost one um, zoning request, development permit, change of zone. We're 100% in 19 years. And do you think all of your experience, you know, previous to this, going through the legal background, the, the home building, and then in even even into, you know, the sale of a, a, a cosmetics company to a public, uh, I believe Estee Lauder's public. Um, does right. all all of that inform, you know, the day to day? I mean, uh, but obviously it does. But I guess the question is how 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 do you navigate all of that varied terrain? Right. I mean, you've done you've done a lot of different things over the years. So, you know, I'm a, I'm a, a mutt. Hmm. I'm, a, I'm a collection of mutually exclusive businesses, you know, law practice, real estate development, cosmetics, digital marketing, concierge services, furniture company, ski resort. Um, you know, some of which were grossing, you know, well over $100 million a year. So I've run some big businesses. I've had a thousand people working for me. Each time I've started a business, I've had no background. So my advice to all of your listeners, don't be afraid of that. Um, just you know, head down, learn your category, make quality decisions, and surround yourself with people that are as smart as you and be a good listener. And so for me today, how do I maneuver it? I'm, I've been working since 1976, so 24, 34, 44, 46 years. And 
I still learn all the time. I learn from people who work for me. I learn from reading and witnessing what's happening in our world, what's happening in this category. I'm always a student and I never think I know everything. But the way I, I have confidence that I can, that I'm a good CEO for this resort. And that confidence did not happen the first two, three years. I mean, truly in my personal life, I didn't feel confident about my decisions until after I was 50. And I sold my cosmetic company to Estee Lauder when I was 47. So it's, it took me 25 years to really feel secure in my decision-making process because when you're the ceo and i've been a ceo my entire life uh, you have the ultimate and final decision making authority mm -hmm. and that comes with responsibility and it, it also comes with listening to your team and you know a consensus discussion but there are times where i make decisions still quite a few that i say with all due respect we're going this way and so, you know, it, it's the ski resort business is it's not complex like the cosmetic business. I will tell you that um, the, some of the worst things about this industry is things that are out of your control. Snow. Mm. You, you can do everything right, as you know, and have a poor December just because Mother Nature didn't show up. And, you know, impacts your P&L dramatically. Those things are hard for me to take because I tend to like to control my world. Mm -hmm. um, but in terms of the operating company, I still am, I still run sales and marketing for this resort. I have brilliant young people who report to me, but, you know, I still look at the copy of, of everything that comes out. And I still run all the revenue departments of this operating company. And, and the real estate side is, uh, it's stressful just because, as you know, I mean, this is your business as well. You know what developers have to go through. But it's not, you know, I, I have a lot of confidence in real estate development because I've done it for a long time, since 1984. Well, I also think that you, based on what you just said, um, in terms of risk mitigants and managing downside variants, uh, I mean it usually is the case that people who've lived through a severe cycle or two know how to keep a reasonable chip stack on the table and, and not shove it all in. Um, I think that exactly. that's a big part of your success, but I, I want to go back to what you just said about this idea of, you know, pre 50, maybe not having the kind of confidence in your decision-making that you do now in all of those years and or scenarios that would have predated that um, change, you know, like what then did you do if you didn't have the confidence and yet you were, you know, running a, a 3000 home development company or running a law practice or, or driving a VC backed uh, cosmetics company? How were you, how were you navigating it with the condition that maybe you didn't have complete confidence in your decisions? Well, I kept that to myself. 
Yeah, sure. But you still had to make the decisions, right? You still had to. Move I made the decisions. You know, leaders have to lead. Yeah, and they lead by example. Uh, I've always, and, and my team knows it. Nobody works harder than I do. Um, nobody gets up earlier than I do. They go to bed a lot later than I do. But you know, a leader has to be out there with confidence because I can tell you, uh, just being a CEO of my whole life. If I just burped the wrong way, my team was, oh, what's wrong? Okay, what's going on here? Something's wrong with Howard. He didn't smile today. So you have to, on the front end, have wh- however you feel that day, and particularly if, if it's not a good day, you cannot express that to your team ever, and I never do. I mean, if there's if the shit has hit the fan, excuse me, um, and it's something we obviously have to talk about, we talk about those things. But I can never show weakness in terms of my confidence and our ability to take a challenge. It's it's just that's just my philosophy. So in those pre fifty years. You know, I would I would do things that some people would say I was crazy. You know, like for instance, starting a cosmetic company when there was no need for a new cosmetic company. But mm. I saw I saw a void in so that was nineteen ninety three, where Christy Brinkley was forty some years old and the spokesperson for CoverGirl, and that was the only really strong teen brand out there. And I said, you know, I think there's an opportunity to start a new brand in mass market. So did I have 100% confidence in that decision? No. I went to probably 20 VCs who said no. And then I went to a final one who had just financed... Oh, I can't think of the airline. JetBlue and a few others out of Silicon Valley. And they said, we love this idea. So it's, it's, you never have 100% surety when you start doing anything. Buying a ski resort, zero background in that. Um, But I felt that, I mean, that one was a more disjointed decision, actually. That, that. That was never on my wish list. Right. It just happened. But 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 on this topic here, um, my brother's in the military, and I'm pretty sure he and I have had the, the discussion around courage and that courage isn't a lack of fear. Um, courage is fear with the conviction to be in action. Exactly. I love being in the game. I love my dad. My dad taught me something, be a rule breaker, not a rule maker. Yeah. Um, I, I like disrupting categories um, because I, I've learned, a tr- I, I even, I, I got really interested in marketing in San Diego where I recognized the move up. I recognized that all these boomers, myself, were all starting to have kids and no one was really capitalizing on the move up market. And I did that. And I did it with a voice that resonated. And that's how we you know, got so successful so quickly. 
in that real estate company. And I, same thing with cosmetics. I recognized a voice or a void and created a unique voice. I think our tagline was everything great about being a girl. You know, another one that was quite edgy is you got a mouth, learn to use it. Um, you saw my campaign that for this winter for Red Mountain, welcome to the good life. Yeah, it's um, brilliant. So, I mean, I I like being in the game. And frankly, I'm not so sure how I'm going to function when I'm finally out of the game, which I know <laughs> is inevitable. Right. Um, so I, I think that the courage piece, there's there's courage and there's also huge responsibility. And the huge responsibility is weighs heavy on me. You know, money that I bring in from people, it's a huge responsibility. Decisions that I make with regard to this community, it's a huge responsibility. And I don't take it lightly. So, you know, back to the, you know, your question is, you know, what happened at 50? I think my track record was starting to speak for itself where I said, Hey, you know what? I, I think my, my judgments are pretty good. And I've had my ass kicked a few times too. Right. It's not like it's been a Cinderella story. Um, especially in real estate, you know, when the cycles go 2000, well, 2000, 19, or actually 1990, you know, 1989 was an amazing year. 1990, not so good, <laughs> but you know, I learned how to extract myself from bad situations as well, which is also something that is intense, but it's part of your skill set you need to have, which is how to get out of trouble yeah. and how to manage and how to manage risk. Right now, I'm mature enough now to know how to manage my risk going in. Because when you're 40 years old, when I was 40 years old, I had a lot of exuberance and confidence. And I think I had this statement once when we were, I think, $100 million outstanding in real estate loans in 1989, saying, well, you know, we borrow so much. I mean, obviously, no one's going to ever go after us because we can't pay that back. Well, that was stupid yeah. <laughs> at the time. Um, so, you know, those things you just, those don't resonate with me anymore through maturity. Now it's, you're married, you have four kids, you have grandkids, you know, you're in, you know, the fourth quarter of your life, manage your risk and manage your risk for your investors as well. I mean, I look at my investors just as if they were me, you know, my, my responsibility to them is the same as it would be to my family. And, and I think people appreciate that yet. They still go in fully cognizant of the fact that especially in real estate, things can change you know, dramatically. How, how does, you know, uh, uh, there's so many things I can jump on here, but I'll try to keep us moving in a general direction. Um, just listening to you talk, I'm like scri scribbling down all these notes that I want to open up further, but uh, you know, I hear what you just said, treating an investor uh, or, or thinking of an investor as somebody that's akin to family. Like, how, how does that show up for you? Because they're, they're always, to me, in, in an imperfect capital formation, 
you end up with uh, these synthetic tensions that are a result of the contractual agreement that make it so what might be good for you and what might be good for your investors versus what's good for the project in the marketplace are not the same thing. And it's because there's been some written word and expectation around timelines and return profiles. And, and then you have something like what the Fed's doing worth mentioning. It's, you know, November 4th, 2022. And I think the prime rate now is 4%, which is up several hundred points from the beginning of the year. How does the idea of treating an investor like family show up in, you know, like a real world uh, instance so that you don't have to maybe uh, face those same sorts of foreseeable tensions? Well, the, the foreseeable events are beyond anyone's control. So the, the first thing you do is you start out with a group that fully understands what they're getting into. That you don't just talk about the upside. You talk about all the things that can happen. And so they know going in that they could lose all their money. But I never have capital calls in my partnership. So they, they have exposure that's limited. But so the first thing is that they understand the pluses and the minuses. The, the second piece is that I have to main control, maintain control over situations that go south and have a document that supports me. And therefore, the, these investors have to trust me implicitly to think that I'm going to do the right thing because it's going to be decision making that is beyond their influence and or um, contribution, right? They're trusting the GP, me. Mm -hmm. And so, and, and the third piece is that I communicate with, I usually have a small group of investors, even in the, the Red Mountain, we have 22 total, but four have 85% of the money, one has 80% of that. <clears throat> and this is a guy I didn't know at all 18 years ago. And he's one of my dearest friends now. Trust me implicitly. Um, but he also understands that sometimes things happen. You have to make tough decisions. So you, you better pick your investors carefully because things can go south. And you'll have to make decisions that can ultimately impact them. And, and I'll give you an example. I had a project that I think the IRR was almost 50 at the time and the recession hit and I had paid the bank back and I still had 25 or 30 units. And I went to my group and I said, I'm taking this, I'm cutting the retail in half because I think we're going to be in this thing for a long time. Uh, they agreed. Um, they didn't have a choice, but you know, they knew I was going to do it. And I sold those units out in three weeks. They ended up getting back 75% of their investment and a tax loss that got their money back 100%. And, you know, I did that quickly because I'd been around a long time with trust. So I at least have the power to do those things. And I, it, I, I didn't disenfranchise any of them. You know, I had a situation with this, a group where at the time in 
where people were getting preps, right? Nine, 10, 11% preps. And then a partnership with a $17 million accrued prep in it. And I went back to this group and said, look at, I can't go forward with this accrued prep and you have to waive it. But because of my personal relationship, they waived the past prep and waived any future prep that allowed me to raise future capital. Well, so look, you're talking so about something really, you know, my investors be, become, they're not just money. See you later. They tend to get engaged with, with the project. And I, and I allocate time for these investors and it's not overwhelming, but when there's, when there are things that have to be discussed, I make sure that they're not surprised, even though they don't have, you know, the vote. So, I mean, I don't know if that makes sense to you. No, it makes perfect sense. If I even answered that question. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. So, Howard, you're talking about raising a very specific type of capital, which I would call friends and family money or country club money, which isn't to suggest that it's unsophisticated, um, but that it is different than institutional capital where, quote unquote, professionals have gone out raised a bucket of capital. They have a mandate under a certain time, certain to produce returns. Their whole value prop to that investor base is that they're better than the competitive set in delivering attractive risk adjusted returns. Um, I think you know the money that I'm talking about quite well also, but how, how do you overlay what you're doing with other types of capital call it institutional capital or otherwise that that won't allow you the kind of autonomy that you're just uh and, and patience it sounds like there's some autonomy and there's some patience how do you know what maybe so I've, I've done it is what money won't you take i won't take money that has very sharp teeth yeah so i've had i've had venture capital silicon valley money that had you know obviously mandates in their funds and returns and you know my i was in my investors in, in jane cosmetics the second group which was institutional venture capital they were in this deal 20 months so they had a four and a half x in 20 months they were pretty happy although when i got the offer from estee lauder they told me We've only been in this thing 20 months. They usually have a four-year horizon, but I felt this was really a good offer and convincing to take it. And actually had to give them another million dollars of of return to get it done. But, you know, today um, I have a completely different mindset about you know, raising money and how to treat those investors. And you're right that I can't go to a fund that, it's trying to get, you know, 20 IRRs and in short periods of time that, uh, that have a lot of involvement in, in my business. And there's nothing wrong with those guys. It just doesn't fit my profile, but on a real estate project, it does fit my profile. If an investor came up to me institutional and said, look, I'd like to take a run with this put up the seed capital. And if you hit those bogeys, I'm, I'm in, I have no problem with that. On a single deal. Let's go build the next, you know, phase of development at the base. Correct. On a single do, deal. But yeah. 
years in like a ski resort. I mean, put it in context. Roger Penske was one of the major investors of Deer Valley. Well, he was in that deal 48 years. Yeah. You know, and he obviously was patient capital. My, my main investor is patient capital because we've been, we we're growing the value proposition. It's taken a long time. I can't tell you that I ever thought I'd be in this 18 years when we bought this longest time I was ever in a deal was cosmetics. And that was 10. But even though I sold it after, you know, four, um, not even, but I worked for Estee Lauder for three years. So this one is, is an anomaly for me. And it's also an anomaly in terms of what it is. It's not just a business. It's a business that's joined at the hip with the community that I value and respect and honor. And it's probably not the easiest thing to manage because sometimes you make decisions that skew towards that community that other people would just say, whatever. And that's just not who it is and who I am. Do you view the, um, I'll say, mismatch between the business case that is red mountain resort by the way i said red mountain lodge before red mountain resort um in terms of like it's a slow boil right it's a it's a patient approach that you as the head of that business are executing do you view the capital mismatch as opportunity or impediment not being able to go get the high IRR, high active management style from that kind of capital? Well, it depends. I mean, this real estate project, the IRR is 46%, the Crescent. Mm -hmm. That's a good IRR. Yeah, that's a great IRR. Um, the, the ski op company, it certainly has been a slow boil, but it's taken us, we, we've stayed patient and steady with our vision and we haven't deviated in the two thousands in 2006, seven, when the capital was just flowing into the ski resorts, we were criticized of, you know, why don't you have more of this? Why don't you have more high speeds? Why don't you have x y and z Uh, then today as we sit here they're all built out we all understand how the experience at some of these resorts that have populations of three to five million within or 20 million that matter within five hours six hours seven hour drive and or international airports is really taxing the infrastructure and consequently impacting the ski experience, not to mention the expense of it. What we have now is we are now current, hip and cool and mm-hmm. surprising people like yourself. And therefore the consequences are the impact is, for instance, our real estate value, our real estate holdings have quadrupled on appraised value. Not on all of our properties, but anecdotally, if you take a couple of them and extra, extrapolate them out by over 4x. 
So our patients, and not only is, is it increased in value, but it's increased in demand uh, that communities like this and resorts joined at the hip to communities like Roslyn are becoming extremely attractive. Mm-hmm. So how- therefore, go ahead. And therefore today we are very relevant, very current, and not, not as a company that is behind the times, but a company that is ahead of the curve. Yeah, I see that. You, you talked about it early on that you guys have become a partner with Icon. And, you know, my view of the that whole, I'll just say transaction where you buy your 24-hour fitness membership and you've got unlimited access or slightly restricted access to a massive web of ski resorts. It definitely strikes me as the best of times, the worst of times, like the value prop for the buyer is insane. You spend $900 and you can go ski, whatever it is, 17 different mountains, depending on, you know, which of these you, you pick, but we, we all know the downsides and the Instagram lift lines that are three hours long at the base of Vale and all that sort of stuff. How do you view this phenomenon? How do you parse good from bad? You know, and how do you guys reconcile, um, you know, hopping on the bandwagon and kind of getting, getting in the, the icon? You know, I chose carefully. Um, I did a campaign called fight the man, own the mountain. That was the first crowdfunding of a ski resort ever in the United States and Canada and the first cross-border crowdfunding ever. We did it about four years ago. And two weeks before I launched, uh, Vail Resorts had bought Whistler. And you know, I did it as kind of a fluke. It's, it's too long of a story how I got into it, but uh, it became very successful. We raised several million dollars and ended up having 820 non-voting investors who own our resort and couldn't be happier. And the average investment was 3,500 bucks. So I was kind of the anti-veil, you know, through that campaign. Um, when Altera showed up, you know, it was clear that this world was going through a paradigm shift with these passes. And to your point, it's too good of a deal uh, for the consumer. And I want, you know, I now had Revelstoke, which is four hours from us, became an, an icon partner. Um, Big three became an icon partner. And I, I know and know today we have the capacity to bring in some more visitors. And I felt that I had to choose one and not to be left out because I'm confident that notwithstanding an increase in visitation, and it's ironic, I mean, the year we signed up with ICON, the border closed and with COVID and the pandemic. So, you know, we haven't even had a chance to actually see the benefits too much. This year we will, um, but I'm confident it's not gonna interfere with our ski experience and actually provide a lot of joy to these ICON members who are gonna come to Red Mountain and say, wow. So it's going to build our awareness, but we still have the capacity to handle um, 
all of the the pressure points that interfere with the ski experience, starting with parking, then the lift lines, the pricing. I mean, our lift ticket today, the ninth largest ski resort, U.S. dollars is a hundred bucks. Hmm. You know, it's the, so I and we we have two other mountains that I can put chairlifts on to if, if, in case our you know quote lift lines become a problem. And are you guys unlimited icon or do you have a like seven day thing? I think Deer Valley. Yeah, we have the seven. We have seven days. Seven right? days. Okay. Cool. And, but yeah, so and they're good. You know, there's some good resorts there. The management is 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 good. And, you know, for us, it's, this will be the first year that we'll really see what Icon's all about because the border's now completely open and you don't have to do anything to show up. Um, but, you know, I, I, I just felt that I couldn't, I couldn't be left out anymore. And since then now, Panorama, which is within our region, Schweitzer, which is three hours from us, is now an Icon member. You know, obviously Crystal Mountain in Seattle, Mount Bachelor, and uh, so, you know, we're, we're with some good other resorts and, and it makes it a, a good, you know, being on the powder highway that we are, we actually say we're the first stop on the powder highway. I think that, you know, it makes sense and, and I'm not worried at all about how it's going to interfere with our experience. Yeah, today. no, I get it. I think it's an astute decision. You know, it's a good business decision. It, it, it was, and this is where I can make those decisions with confidence. Yeah, right. And you got to evolve. The market, you know, the market's changing. The market has changed that you, you and I know dramatically. Yeah. So I'm going to go back to one other thing you mentioned, and then we'll kind of try to hit a little bit of, not that this hasn't been personal thus far, but a couple personal things. And um, I won't keep you from the the balance of your day, but um, you did say, you know, head down, learn your space, listen, and, and build quality teams in terms of how you can have the mm, guts to just move into a new space. Y you've got a small, high-powered team at Red. Um, the story I've told on this show a few times in the past is I was listening to an MIT uh, tech guy and somebody asked him if he was afraid of the competing widget. And he almost immediately replied, I'm not afraid of any technology. I'm afraid of competing teams and who's on that team. Um, I wonder if you could open up a little bit more about your view of teams, your current teams, the teams you built in the past, you know, kind of what keeps you staying small in that core um, group that, you, you know, you have as advisors and lieutenants. Yeah, I mean, so because I've done so many diverse businesses, my teams have obviously been different. Um, my real estate company in San Diego, we had, I think, four or 500 people in that company we did our own concrete and framing marketing but that my core team was probably 20. Uh, my core team in cosmetics we had i think 900 people and that core team was also probably 20. Um, red mountain the core team in real estate is four 
it's really the total team, four people direct that are on this almost $50 million project. Um, my core team and my operating company at Red, I mean, I had a manager's meeting yesterday, a kickoff meeting for this season. There are 44 people, uh, 44 managers. And, you know, we're, when we're fully open, we have 350 people employed. I'd say my core team on the ski ops side is less than 10. Um, that I engage with. And I don't choose size for control. Like size evolves based on the business. And, but I do believe that a, a smaller, more intimate group, notwithstanding the size of your business, is easier to manage, especially someone like me that is hands on. I don't micromanage, but I'm very detail oriented. I believe in staff meetings on all my departments on a regular basis with written agendas that people own. I've done that for at least 30 years. And so therefore, if you have a team that is manageable, it becomes more intimate and it's better for those team members because my philosophy in team management is team participation, consensus, discussion, disagreements, advocacy, open. I tell people that you're all my partners. You know, mm. I'm not your boss, but I have the last word if it's needed. <laughs> and I've always liked having the last call you know i've only been in this role and therefore it, it's pretty much my dna to be the boss although i don't act like a boss and i'm very and here's the other thing that i would say that i've always had i'm very accessible i mean i have people at any level of this ski resort that reach out to me with my phone number and or email to talk to me about something. And I'm not going over anybody else. They know that it's okay to call me a lifty, someone that works in ops. Hey, I have an issue. So my philosophy also is I don't have walls between departments that, you know, my communication flows between departments and my authority flows through departments, but I am, very light on authority and very heavy on discussion, open discussion. Because, you know, I'm, I'm 30 years older than the average employee of, of our firm mm -hmm. company now. And, you know, youth is, you know, it's my marketing, head of my marketing sales is 35. Um, I can just go through all these departments. I mean, we are women, I probably have more women in, in director roles than any ski resort in North America. Top 10, I challenge anyone. Uh, I love working with women. They're sensitive. They're not so um, macho. Um, but, you know, I, I, I nurture open discussion and give in and give people the sense that they can talk or ask contribute anything they want and not 
and feel that they're they're going to be listened to, that they can contribute and be part of it. And therefore, because of you know, as I get older, and the and the voice of the world is younger, I have to make sure that I'm letting those people do a lot of these kind of strategic decisions that they believe reflect the demographic that we are speaking to. Hmm. That's cool. Um, I'm going to shift yeah. over a little bit here to daily routines. I know one of them because we've both been out on the bicycle together, uh, fitness and, and staying active. I know is part of your daily, um, you know, my personal view is if I can tee up some sort of routine that allows me to get my head and perhaps my heart in the right spot for the day. If I do that on a regular basis, then I have a better chance of, you know, sort of the, the idea win win the day, win it all. Um, not necessarily that a win is in fact the lens, but I find a lot of utility in trying to have a morning routine, a daily routine. I wonder if anything like that is um, a part of your, your day to day. I mean, physical exercise for me is, is really like a drug. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I was a competitive swimmer from eight years old through high school. I became a runner for 20 years. I've been on a road bike, now a mountain bike for 30 years. Um, I can't go three days without working out or I won't be productive. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm still, it, it's just so essential to, to a balance and it can be, you know, we have a new puppy walking a dog for two or three miles, you know, but you know, I try to ride a bike three to four days a week, maybe eight hours a week, um, walk the dog, do yoga. I lift a few weights, not nothing to be nothing to brag about forcing i'm more a cardio guy than anything but i still love to ski but i think physical exercise um, is it's just so essential for my personal well-being and and as you get older you have to, you have to be careful because your body just does not heal the way it would do years ago but yeah, yeah. i think it, it and you know the people it's, it's interesting the people that i'm closest to have that same mindset that if you don't you know protect your if you don't work out physically which contributes to you mentally then it's very hard to be effective as a as a, in my case in the job that i have or any job that i've ever had yeah, I couldn't agree more. I've told some friends of mine that if you could actually sell the health repercussions of being everything you just mentioned, by the way, with the exception of yoga, uh, is a cardio pursuit and the payoff for getting into that state on a regular basis. I don't, you know, somebody figures out that pill, it's going to be a better than the results they're getting out of Botox and Viagra and all the other sort of designer exactly. things out there. And, and you know, it, it, and the mountains and you know, it. you're in a, the Alpine. I mean, we camp, we have a sprinter van and when I turned 65, which seven years ago, we bought it on a fluke. 
my kids said, that will last two months. Well, we put 55,000 miles on it. We've been to Canada nine times. Um, it's a place where we can get into the, the mountains, even if it's two or three nights and just, as they say, forest, was it forest cleansing or forest bathing, the Japanese say. There you well, go. Um, I fully believe in that. And what I love about Roslyn is it's not just a skiing, you know, there's trailheads everywhere. We throw on snowshoes and go into the forest and a full storm day with our dog and our friends. And, I mean, it's so good for your head. It's just so essential for life and life goes by quick. And, you know, those things for me are the things I enjoy most. It's not, you know, buying a new car or, you know, it, it's, it's physical activities in natural settings with people that you love. That mm -hmm. is to me the greatest enjoyment. I get that a hundred percent. Um, well, look, you've shared a ton, um, any sort of potentially closing thought here on, you know, message to entrepreneurs who might be, um, you know, <laughs> I love what you said, by the way, like, yeah, once I, once I got into my fifties, I've found a level of confidence that had been previously, um, less abundant, which is to say that the entrepreneurial journey be beginning middle end is fraught with all sorts of challenges. So whether you're talking to somebody who might be starting out or somebody mid career, or even the, the guys who are, you know, right, right to near the end of it, but still fighting the good fight, any thoughts that, um, or wisdom you might share to, to that crew. Cause that is a large part of who I think, uh, is listening to the show here. Well, I would say that never look back. I never, I look back to learn. I never look back and regret and follow your heart. I mean, if you have this desire to be an entrepreneur in whatever category, and it's not for everybody. My daughter's about ready to start her a new agency advertising and marketing. She's 30. She's my baby. And, you know, I, I'm giving her some mentoring. And what I say is, you know, expect it to be challenging. You know, make sure your life, the complexity of your life can handle the challenge of starting a company. But for me, I've never worked for anybody. I have started seven companies and there's for me personally, just personally, there's nothing greater than to start with an idea and start bringing together people that are like-minded and building something that works and that provides a product at a, an experience and a price and a value and all those things that it's just fantastic. And, and the failure rate is high. So it's, it's like swinging against a 102 mile an hour fastball. It's hard to hit. And the way you minimize the risk is do your homework. Don't take shortcuts. Don't trust your gut. Bounce it off a lot of people. Um, because I've always said that you can get drunk on your own Kool-Aid but not have a clue where you are. Mm. And so, you know, my advice is on to be an entrepreneur, make sure you have good partners, make sure you have enough money to at least get you to a point where you think you have something. Because if you're just chasing money from the beginning and you can't focus on the idea, 
then you're diluting your efforts and you're going to minimize your opportunity for success. And pick those partners and make sure they understand the support that's needed financially to give you that shot. And then work your ass off. <laughs> Indeed. Um, so Red Mountain Lodge, anybody, you guys can Google it. Howard, I don't know if you want to. Red Mountain Resort. I keep doing it the wrong way. I'm sorry. I was trying to do it the right way there too. Red yeah. Mountain Resort. Thank you. Uh, red redresort.com. There you go. Our URL. That is exactly what I was going to ask you. And if you want to leave any other uh, contact information or digital, uh, you know, trail markers behind, I'll I'll hand it over to you for that kind of a comment. Yeah, I mean, if I, I'm when you asked me once about giving back, I mean, I'm always willing to talk to someone about advice. You know, I'm still very busy running for two companies really. And that someday if I ever slow down, I do want to give back in the form of helping young entrepreneurs, you know, manage the minefields that are out there. And, um, but yeah, I, it's been enjoyable. Hopefully you've, you're happy with this. Yeah, absolutely. Howard, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. I know you're super busy and you've got an upcoming season opening and I'm sure there's a lot of logistics on just the operating company on that side. So thank oh, you. Yeah. And uh, you're welcome. Thanks to the listeners for carrying along with us. And uh, yeah, thank you. You're welcome.